0: So I've been taking care, I say this in a wonderful way, I've, been, I've had the wonderful opportunity to wear the dad hat while walking in the mom's shoes this weekend. And that has been quite an adventure, so much so that I ran out of the house today without my Bible, so I'm using a church Bible, uh, but thankfully I did remember my notes. So uh, will you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. And as we turn to John's Gospel, I want to say that today marks the second to last sermon in our study through this book. When I stand before you next week to give the final message, Lord willing, we will conclude a series that began five years ago this month. Of course, we've explored many other portions of Scripture during that time, but today is sermon number 100 in this particular study, and I cannot... Imagine a better passage to mark such a notable milestone. Chapter 21 is essentially the epilogue to the Gospel of John. Here we will not find a monumental event like the crucifixion of chapter 19 or the resurrection of chapter 20. Instead, this final chapter provides just one more look into what a relationship with Jesus entails. It pictures everyday grace and how Jesus is intimately involved with our everyday lives. The scene finds Jesus on the beach with some of his closest friends and followers. He has come to meet them, help them, guide them, provide for them, and share breakfast with them. The first section, verses 1-14 through show how in Jesus we see the presence of God and how God comes to us and directs our steps. We see the work of God and how God involves us in the work. And we see in the invitation to a simple morning meal how God invites us to Himself. If I had to boil down what it means to be in relationship with Jesus... I think it's pictured here. It's simply entering into the life of Christ while receiving Him into yours. Sometimes, however, that can be easier said than done. Sometimes, truth be told, Our past makes us hesitant to go the way of Jesus. Hesitant to remain open before Him and receptive to Him. Even though we hear and generally believe in a God who forgives, it's difficult sometimes to accept that God continues to forgive. And still loves us nonetheless. Furthermore, it can be difficult to regard as true that God still has a good and high purpose for you even after you've failed Him. The passage before us this morning is therefore a relatable one. I think it speaks, I know it speaks into each of our hearts and lives filled with hope and love. For even in our moments of deepest failure, we discover the depths of God's love and grace. So will you look look at this with me? John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He, Peter, said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? God, we thank you for this portion of your word that I know is so powerful and speaks so deeply into my own life, and I know that it speaks deeply into the lives of these my friends and brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I pray, people, I would just even pray and ask that you would take a time, a moment here to just ask God to speak into your life from His Word this morning. That you would be open to what God would want to say to you this morning. That you would even pray for me, that I would be true to God's word and that the Holy Spirit would enable me in my speaking and enable all of us in our hearing and receiving. Oh God, will you do this for us, we pray. For your name's sake. And for the well being of each person here, we ask it through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning, I want to address the question what does God do with us when we fail Him? When we make promises to God and don't keep them. When we give in to the same temptation over and over and over again. When our Christian lives aren't very Christ-like. What is God's heart toward us in those moments? In those moments. How does He deal with our failures This scene between Jesus and Peter provides a a window into God's heart. It helps us answer these questions, I think. It helps us deal with the past, rely on God's goodness in the present, and move forward with hope and purpose. You recall that Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. On the night of Christ's arrest, just before he was tried, just before Jesus was tried and crucified, Peter was so sure of himself. Earlier that same night, he made a point to tell Jesus that though everyone else may fall away, he wouldn't. Lord, he said, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and if I have to, to death. I'll lay, he says in John 14, I will lay down my life for you. And yet, once Jesus was betrayed and arrested and taken by force to the courtyard of the high priest as he was being interrogated and beaten and the opposition against him was at a fever pitch, when the pressure was on and the rubber of Peter's faith met the road of real life, Peter caved And he caved to the questions of a young girl no less Hey Don't you know that Jesus she asked No, I don't know him he answered as others joined in Are you are you sure they said, because, <laughs> because you kind of look like the guy who always hung out with him. No, no, it's not me. And then another asks, Well, well, didn't I see you in the garden with Jesus just an hour or two ago? And then Peter starts cursing. Like, he's just going to throw in a few expletives to really underscore the point that I don't know Jesus. I don't want to know Jesus. I don't know. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And then the rooster crowed. And Luke writes that. Peter turned in that moment and locked eyes with Jesus across the courtyard, and he remembered how Jesus predicted it would happen exactly this way, how Peter would deny him three times, and Peter just broke. He just broke. He just wept bitterly, fled the scene, not to be seen again until after Christ rose from the dead. The soon to be Apostle Peter had failed Jesus as a disciple, and he failed Jesus as a friend. A lot of us know what that feels like. What it feels like to fail Jesus, to not identify with him, to turn our back on the relationship, to violate our own conscience, to cave. When the pressure's on. Now, it's important, I think, to distinguish between failure that owes to sin and failure that's just merely a result of being a, a fallible human being with real human limitations. So, not all failure is the result of sin or sinful choices, but Peter's was. Peter's sin was real and it was wrong. There's no way to sugarcoat it. He said he'd be loyal, he said he'd be trustworthy, he said he was would be faithful, but it was all for naught. It was vanity, it was just an empty boast in his self-assessed devotion, a devotion that he considered far superior to that of the other disciples. And I just wonder how many times have we had similar thoughts or made similar claims? Lord, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm yours. My entire life is yours. I won't be like those who worship at church on Sunday, uh, but then at worldly altars through the rest of the week. I won't be content with watered-down Christianity. I won't, I won't settle for average or nominal faith. I won't let sin have mastery over me. I won't let apathy overtake me. I won't give in. I won't give up. I won't, I won't, I won't. And yet, despite our many I-won'ts, you still find yourself doing the very same thing you said you wouldn't. But then... How do you feel in those moments? How do you respond? I imagine, I imagine we all know people who were once involved in church. They, they went to church or youth group or a midweek community group. They took part in a camp or retreat or missions trip. They seemed so interested in Jesus, so genuinely interested, but something happened. Something derailed them. Decision than a series of small, usually, usually small, but significant decisions that just slowly drew them away and left them feeling that they'd failed spiritually, like they tried to be a good Christian but failed, so they may as well stop trying. You know, people like that. I see that a lot. You know, when people outside the church learn that I'm a pastor, it's interesting how many of them will mentally, I mean, I can see it. And I've seen it so much, I know it's coming. How many of them will mentally revisit an earlier time in their life when they thought about God. But after years of living apart from God, when I'm in conversation with them, I can see the shame come over them. I see the walls come up. I see the excuses come out. And even some in the church still walk about ashamed and ineffective. How we deal with the guilt of our past church is critical to how we relate with God in the present. What does Jesus do with Peter and with Peter's past? First, he deals with Peter one-on-one, notice, and then does two key things for Peter. In love, he confronts Peter's sin and he moves Peter to repentance. I think that's what's going on here. In verse 15, he confronts Peter's sin with the question, do you love me more than these? Now there's some, some, some discussion about exactly what Jesus is referring to here. Is he asking Peter if Peter loves him more than Peter loves the other disciples meaning his friends and peers his relationships <clears throat> or is he asking if Peter loves him more than Peter loves these fish meaning his trade as a fisherman his his living his lifestyle I don't think it's either one of those. I think he's asking if Peter loves Jesus more than the others love Jesus. Do you love me more than they do? Do you? And the reason I think he asks them is because I think he's bringing him gently back to that specific instance, including the one in the upper room, on the night of Christ's arrest when Peter boldly and pridefully claimed to love Jesus more than everyone else. Excuse me. (coughs) When he said, do you love me more than these? I think the question intended to address Peter's sin of pride. And rightly humble Peter before God. And I think Peter got the point because notice how that his answer affirmed his love for Jesus without comparing himself to the others as he so often did. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And then after confronting Peter's sin, Jesus moved him toward repentance by giving room to express his love for Jesus that would carry him forward. Three times he asked, do you love me? And with each repetition, Peter affirmed as much. Now, when I was younger, I used to think that Jesus was, honestly, I used to think that Jesus was being kind of mean here. Like kind of rubbing Peter's nose in it. As if he's walking through Peter, he's, if he's walking Peter through the three denials all over again with the three do you love me's. Like, do you love me, Peter? Yeah, I do. Well, are you sure? Let's make really, really sure. I don't see it that way anymore. Because if you look at it and how Jesus responds to each of Peter's yeses, You see that he's not beating him up over the past. Though Peter was grieved because the threefold repetition of the question no doubt reminded him of his threefold denial, Jesus is actually far more interested in the present than the past. Or far more concerned with what the future holds than what the past entailed. And therein we discover God's grace In Jesus Christ. We discover the gospel of Christ. In the gospel, we discover God and the heart of God and the grace of God that flows from a heart of love. The gospel changes how we think about failure. Jesus didn't approach Peter in anger, in disappointment, or with retribution in hand. The guilt of Peter's sin, I think, was consequence enough. Instead, Jesus came to Peter and the others, by the way, Each of them failed him too, in different ways. But he came to them to be with them, to provide for them, to enjoy a meal with them, and to ready them for what's coming next. Instead of beating him up with his past, Jesus is actually restoring and renewing Peter and calling him to even greater things. The gospel of Jesus Christ declares... That in the grace of God, we get not what our sins deserve, but life with God that our Savior has provided. That's good news. I'm sorry, I've got this tickle back here. Matter of fact, I think even the scene itself pictures the gospel. They just finished breakfast around the fire, and what makes this intriguing is that it's a charcoal fire. And the only other time in the Bible, we read a lot about fire, but the only other time in the Bible where we're told that it's a charcoal fire was that infamous night of Peter's denial. You know how certain things will take you back to certain times in your life? Like a certain song will immediately take you back. Or a certain meal or a certain smell even will just immediately take you back. I can't help but wonder if Jesus did it this way so that Peter could finally deal with his past. Otherwise, every time Peter sat around a charcoal fire, he'd think of that night when he said, I don't even know him. Every time he heard a rooster crow, it would haunt him. So I just wonder, obviously, speculation. I just wonder if Jesus was taking Peter back to this place of failure to make it a place of hope instead, to eliminate the guilt associated with the last time Peter sat around a charcoal fire. You know, that's what God did at the Valley of Achor. For example, let me explain. In the book of Joshua, you've heard this story. A man named Achan sinned terribly and caused massive death in the community. Achan stole the bacon. That's how I first learned it, right? (laughs) There was a horrible disobedience. Horrible. And the consequences were severe. And it happened in the valley of Achor. And yet years later, the prophet Hosea wrote of God's mercy when God himself said to the people of Israel, listen, I will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. God aimed to transform that terrible place Into a place of hope and promise. Could it be that Jesus is doing the same with Peter as they sat near the charcoal fire? Certainly, he does it with us. Rather than glossing over sin, he deals with our past so that we can move forward with hope. Jesus isn't primarily concerned about the past, but moving forward, having dealt with the past. Peter didn't need to explain why he failed. The Lord already knew why he failed. The Lord told him it would happen. Nor did Jesus need to hear Peter confess his love. I just really need to hear you say it, Peter. I need to hear you say it three times. Peter already knew that the Lord knew how much he loved them Now what's going on here is Jesus was speaking into Peter's life telling him that I'm far more interested in future hope than past hurt So we're going to deal with the past hurt and move forward And some if I may Some of you, even here in this room, are probably living in the past. Dwelling on past failures that are keeping you from experiencing the present grace of God and from moving forward toward a hope-filled future, you're just carrying that baggage with you all the time. So moving forward in grace means seeing failure as God sees failure. I'm going to be honest and a tad vulnerable with you. I've had people look me in the eye and get red in the face and tell me what a failure I am. I've had people tell others they knew and I knew, tell me, tell them what a failure I am. I've had one individual look me in the face. And say, I am a failure as a pastor, that I have always been a failure, and that I will always be a failure. Now, I have failed at times. I have, I take responsibility, I have made decisions that didn't go right. I have done and said things that were wrong. I have. Either because the things themselves were wrong, or because I did them or said them at the wrong time or in the wrong way. Regardless, wrong. There have been things I've not done or said that I should have. Lord knows my pastoral failures are not in short supply. Nor are my personal ones. But what do I do with that? That's really the question. It's the only reason I share that with you, is because I want to ask what do I do with that? Well, certainly I could withdraw, I could pull away, I could shrink away. T- uh, times of failure tempt us to withdraw, right? I could choose to drown in a sea of self-pity and nurse my many real and perceived inadequacies. I could step aside from my ministry and try avoiding my own issues and insecurities. After all, if we don't put ourselves out there, right? If we don't put ourselves out there, we minimize the risk of criticism and condemnation and we minimize the risk of Failure. If I don't put myself out there. I won't fail. We think. Now, this option is tempting, and it is. It's tempting whenever we're faced with our own failures. I want you to notice how Jesus deals with Peter rather rather than. Pulling him from the game. Please see this. Rather than pulling him from the game and sitting him on the bench, Jesus moves Peter into the starting lineup and empowers him for even greater ministry. Feed my lambs, he says in verse 15. Tend my sheep, he echoes in verse 16. Feed my sheep, he repeats in verse 17. In other words, Jesus gives Peter a meaningful role within the kingdom of God. Peter was to care for the people in Christ's flock from the youngest most tender lamb to the oldest sheep. Peter was to nourish and guide them spiritually and be a shepherd for them. Isn't that incredible? I mean, what grace and love this is. At the core, we need to know, you need to know that God is for you. How many are the problems and struggles with faith because we assume that God is against us, mad at us, disappointed in us, like the people I mentioned earlier who, who once seemed so drawn to Jesus but have allowed shame to distance them, we're prone to do the same. But Jesus relates with failure much differently than we do. Thankful for that. We usually, not always, but we usually want people to pay for their wrongs. We take a three strikes and you're out approach. We hold grudges. Listen, even if we forgive them, forgive them, we rarely trust them again. And certainly, 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 we don't entrust them with anything of value or importance. They blew it. They crossed the line. And so it's stunning. It is utterly amazing to me to see how Jesus entrusts the care of his precious people is so obviously unqualified at that moment. At least by our human standards. You know, this isn't some menial task that Jesus gave. No, the care of His people is near and dear to our Lord's heart. And then He calls them my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep, that he calls them mine, reminds us that Jesus is our shepherd, our good shepherd, the chief shepherd, and yet amazingly, he points Peter, of all people, to be an under-shepherd. Jesus came not to condemn, hear this, not to condemn, but to commission Peter for service. He took the moment of Peter's deepest failure and used it to propel Peter forward to something deep and meaningful. You see, Jesus was calling Peter to himself. To relationship. It's important we see. It was not, do you love the sheep, Peter? It was not, do you love the work of shepherding, Peter? No, no, no. It's, Peter, do you love me? Look at me, Peter. No, no, no. Right here. I want your eye right here. Do you love me? What God wants from us most is not, how much do you know about me? Or how much you do for me. Or what an awesome, moral, upstanding person you are. Holiness is very important, by the way. I don't, not at all making. Or how often do you tell others about me? No, no, no. Foremost on his mind was bringing Peter back to relationship because the surest safeguard against sin and the greatest hope in life is. Being in a loving relationship with Christ. That means drawing closer to Him, hearing Him, learning from Him, following Him, receiving His forgiveness, receiving His grace, res- letting Him speak into your life, hearing His voice, and not the cacophony cacophony, that's a word, not the of all the voices around you. Jesus made it plain that Peter's service was to be motivated by his love for Christ. And Christ's call to follow me. We'll talk about more of this next week. Christ's call to follow me in verse 19 and again in verse 22. It just underscores this fact like Peter, do you love me? Follow me. Okay? If you humble yourself before God and admit your sin and deal with whatever is plaguing you from the past, there is grace for you. If you will follow Jesus, there is life for you and newness of life, a new beginning. Your track record need not define you. Your failures need not define you. Your past need not define you. Jesus doesn't care for and commission perfect people but people whose sins have been forgiven and whose future is filled with grace and promise. And so what will you do with your failure? Like, what will you do the next time you fail? What will you do? Well, you receive God's daily supply of new and tender mercies every day. Every day they're there for you. Every single day. New and tender mercies are there for you. You receive them. You you trust in His steadfast love. You walk in the promises of God. You forget what lies behind. You press on toward the future. You get back on mission. You lean in close to Christ and you follow Him. That's what the gospel would have you do. God is producing in you, in us, humility and brokenness. He's confronting our pride and self-reliance. He's cultivating gratitude and greater devotion to Him. He's transforming us. And as you know, I like to say this, He's transforming us into trophies of grace. He's preparing us. Church, hear this. He's preparing us for further ministry, teaching us How to help others in their failures by caring for us in ours. Do you love Him? So I just want to close with one final illustration. This one from uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegorical tale written by John Bunyan about a man named Christian that describes the Christian life. And Christian, if you know the story, you know he's making his way to heaven and along the way he meets all sorts of people in all kinds of places and each person and place, the author intends each person and place to convey a deeper meaning about life. And at one point, Christian finds himself in the Valley of Humiliation. And it's called the Valley of Humiliation because a mighty demon lives there named Apollyon. Apollyon, Apollyon. And there in that valley, that demon has thwarted the journey of many. So Pollyon comes out to face Christian and the two, after some banter, some very Puritan-like banter where you're really having to decipher what is being said here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> after some banter, the two begin to do battle. And almost immediately, Christian steadily begins to lose the battle. Dart after dart inflicts wound after wound. and The fight goes on for a while, but Christian is growing weaker and weaker. He's suffering significant blood loss with each blow. And seeing his opportunity to pounce, uh, Apollyon rushes Christian, knocks his sword from his hand, throws him to the ground, jumps on top of him, and he's about to do him in. I mean, all seems lost at this moment until, if you picture it, Christian Christian is flat on his back, this demon's weighing down upon him, about to, to, to land the finishing blow, and Christian's just grasping just for anything he can find. And lo and behold, he grabs hold of his sword, by the way, called the Sword of Truth, And he's lying there on the ground and he takes that sword and he thrusts it into the demon and he wins the battle and as he does it, he quotes Micah 7.8, which says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise again. And my hope for you this morning is just that. It's just that. That though you may find yourself in the valley of humiliation today, let not your enemy rejoice over you. Grab hold of God's truth and rise again. For even in our moments of deepest failure, We discover the depths of God's love and grace. Amen. Thank you for your love, oh, Father. Thank you for your amazing, inexplicable, steadfast, unfailing love for your people. Thank you that there is a storehouse, essentially a bottomless well of grace and mercy to be found in you. Thank you for the ways in which you come to us even in our moments of failure, and you don't gloss over it. You want to deal with it, not, not for your sake, not so that you feel better about yourself, but so that we get over it and move forward with faith in you and in obedience and trust and love for you. Thank you for speaking to us this morning, reminding us of these things. Please do all the necessary work in our hearts. Amen.